hands in prayer. That's a something that's modeled biblically. Uh, Psalm 15, who may ascend the, the hill of the Lord, who can dwell in his house, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. One of the images or one of the thoughts with the image of raising hands when you pray is that you're displaying to God innocence. You're showing God there's nothing in my hand, I'm not holding anything back. And it's a time to confess as well because I'm holding my hands up as a symbol that I'm not holding anything between myself and God. So it's rich. You see that reiterated in 1 Timothy 2 that men are to raise up holy hands without wrath and dissension when they gather in the church to pray. So I'd commend that to you. Also on a lighter note, I put a blog piece out this last week. I thought it was pretty good. And... Clearly, my communication was less clear than I thought it was. I was informed this morning, someone thought I was saying I was dying. I, I, I'm not, I am dying, slowly, one day at a time, like all of you. But yeah, news of my death is definitely uh, not current. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, let me pray again. We'll get into the scripture. Father, we, we thank you for joy that overflows because we're in relationship with you. You're the source of peace, Lord Jesus. It's joy in you that can't be contained uh, that we were made to know in a relationship with you. And we pray that that relationship and knowledge of you, in you, from you is expanded this morning from time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Christmas season is on us for sure, and there's all kind that means all kinds of stuff, sales and going and coming and meals and social gatherings, etc. For us as Christians, hopefully it also means preeminently, first and last, the memory, the consolation, the thoughtfulness about the incarnation itself. Incarnate means that God took on our humanity really and physically and fully, you know, in in our flesh, God the Son becoming one of us. This morning's lesson, Lord willing, next Sunday's lesson, and then Christmas Eve lesson, I'm, I'm titling a short series, The Desert Bloomed, and I want to tell you why. Uh, the desert blooming or life out of barrenness or unlikely occurrences or scenarios is a theme in Scripture. It's a rich theme in Scripture out of the Old Testament, preeminently so out of Isaiah. Related to Jesus, God the Son, becoming one of us. In Isaiah 53, which is, you probably remember, it's, it's Jesus as the suffering servant. So picturing Jesus with us in his humanity as the suffering servant of Israel, the picture there is that Jesus is seen as a root coming up out of dry ground. It's desert, it's brown, it's without water. Something still comes up, but it's a root. It's not a lovely plant, it's not a flower, because this is Jesus as the suffering servant. But it's still life coming out of barrenness, Isaiah 53. If you go back to Isaiah 35, that's the, the richer imagery of life out of the desert. The desert blooms. Isaiah 35 is also about the incarnation. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 35 when John's disciples come to him, John's in prison and John's having second thoughts. I thought Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, but maybe I'm wrong. Ask him, you know, clarify this thing for me. So they ask him for John and Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. 
And he says, the lame walk, the blind see, the, good, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed or happy is he who doesn't stumble over me. That's Isaiah 35. The bigger picture in Isaiah 35 is the desert blooms. The waste place is filled with life-giving water, and life comes out of barrenness. That's the thought out of Isaiah. Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. And Micah is where we'll be this morning, but I want to put that backdrop there that when we're talking about the incarnation, one of the rich images of that is that God is giving life where life didn't seem possible. In dry, challenging, desert, barren places, really, but also figuratively, that's the place that God shows up and preeminently in the incarnation. So... That's the title of the series for one reason. Here's the other reason. The imagery of the incarnation as life out of dry desert places, I think, is a timely one for us. Challenging times, dry times, barren times. We're still in the midst of COVID. We've had friends and family members that have been sick or died from COVID. Lockdowns, vaccines, mandates, job losses, income losses, confusion regarding what is not only the present look like, but what does the future look like? It's a great time to be talking about people who lived in a similar challenging time to ours and that in the midst of that challenging desert time, God spoke in Micah and Isaiah about the coming of the Messiah and also in very similar challenging times, Jesus showed up really in His birth in Bethlehem. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning in Jesus' presence, deserts bloom. God works out His salvation in situations that look unlikely or impossible. You can think about the virgin birth in context there. Um, but that's exactly what we see in Isaiah and in Micah, which is the text we'll be looking at this morning. Two primary points this morning. God's promise of Messiah and His arrival occurred in very challenging times. And the second point is God's promise of Messiah and His arrival was to a very small and we could say insignificant place. And hopefully that's an encouragement for us in our time, our day, and our place as well. We're going to be in Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. I'm going to read from the ESV. You can read along. If you use a pew Bible, that's page 779. I'll read the text and we'll have some comments and get into the main themes. Uh, Micah writing for the Lord says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Verse 3 actually shifts gears. Therefore he, God, will give them, Israel, up, this is in judgment, until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child, until Messiah arises in Israel, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord or in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. The beginning portion of verse 5, this one will be our peace. So just some brief comments because I want to give some diligence to the passage itself and then we'll get into the two key themes. Uh, Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of Israel's future leader. Now that future leader is said to come from old days, from eternity past. We know from this as well as many other texts as well that the, the uh, servant, 
the shepherd king that's going to come to Israel for Israel is not a mere person like everyone else. You remember in Exodus when God identifies himself to Moses by personal name, he says, uh, we transliterate to Jehovah, my name is Jehovah, or we say Yahweh, but it means I am that I am. I'm the one who's always been, I'm the one that exists now, I'm the one that always will be. And you see that same thought here, that the ruler God sends is from eternity. He is eternal in nature. He's taking on humanity. But this is another description of the incarnation. Also, we'll look at this too in a minute, but when Micah gives this prophecy, it is not a good time in Israel's history or in Judah's history. And God speaks, frankly, in this small book more about judgment than he does about the coming Messiah and deliverance. There's going to be a time of trouble coming up for Israel. This ruler will be the shepherd for God's people and his servants will be the very strength of God himself. He will be great. He will be the one that brings peace and not a temporary peace, but peace that lasts. So that's sort of the big picture. God's going to send a ruler. He's going to show up in, in Bethlehem. He's going to be God with us. He's going to be the shepherd king that brings in real and lasting peace in spite of the judgment that's coming in the near future. So, do you guys love to read the prophets? When you read the prophets, you, do you ever feel like you took a walk in the woods and you got lost? And that's what it's like when you read the prophets. Okay, and that's true for most people because they're not a narrative and there's usually not a storyline. And what you really have are a series of oracles one after another that may have no relationship to what was just said. So when we read the prophets, we need to orient. And one of the things that we miss, if we don't know the time that Micah and Isaiah wrote, we lose some of the benefit of what God was saying through them. So what I want to do now is just give you some sense of what was going on. What was going on in their day when God spoke through Isaiah and Micah here this morning when we were given this promise of God with us coming from Bethlehem. So Micah lived during the reigns of three kings in Judah. They're Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. By the way, you don't have to remember any of these details, but if it's helpful, great. That puts him in the years between 742 and 686 BC. You don't have to remember those dates either, but if we say Micah's about 700 years before Jesus, so these prophecies are given 700 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, guys, these are challenging, challenging times. We face, in this country and people in the world today, face challenges that are without historic precedent. Uh, we're, we're in waters we've never seen before, this generation and, and pretty much history, history at large. Well, these guys were in days that were much more challenging than the ones we were in in the moment. If you remember a little bit about Israel's history under King David and then his son, King Solomon, there was 80 years of reign between those two, and Israel was at its height. So it's the most militarily powerful. It's the widest geographical occupation. It's the glory. You know, if you live to see Solomon, remember the Queen of the South comes up, and she says, man, it's just a blessing for your servants to be here in your presence. Your wisdom is greater than I'd heard. That's Israel at its, at its apex, as good as it gets, as big as it gets, as broad as it gets. But if you also remember, right after King Rehoboam replaces King Solomon at his death, and what happens? Well, the northern ten tribes revolt, and a new nation is created. Where there was one nation, there's two. There's the northern ten tribes, typically called Israel. There's the southern tribe of Judah. 
And then also, if you read your history, you know that Rehoboam is no sooner taken over than Judah's invaded by Pharaoh in Egypt and Jerusalem's sacked. And the golden shields from Solomon's days are taken and, and Judah is suddenly a second-rate nation. And Israel isn't much better. And because they're at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Ocean, all the bigger, more powerful nations, they're trumping through Israel all the time. So Egypt as a power is to the south. You know, later it would be in Europe, whether you think of Greece and Rome later, north of them. If you go to the east, you've got the Assyrians, which were really the big kids on the block. When Micah is writing, we'll talk about them. But after them, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians. So they're, they're at this nexus, at this crossroads, and they get all the trouble. Because whoever's invading anybody else, they're almost always going through Israel. So their existence as a nation was on shaky ground all the time. Who's, who's more powerful than us? Who's coming through? Who do we need to buy off? You know, how do we negotiate life? Because we're the smallest kids on the block in a big, big, powerful setting that we can't compete with. When Micah wrote, the Jews faced invasions and threats from the Assyrians. This is, if you read later, 2 Kings 15 through 19. By the way, one of the things that makes sometimes the prophets easier if you read a chronological Bible... So it will mix the narrative with the prophets and it'll say this is when this was going on, that's helpful. Or if you read the narratives and then read the prophets soon after or mix that up a little bit, you get a better sense of what's going on, when they're writing, what that looked like. So Assyria is the ascendant power, so that's Nineveh. They're a long way away, but they are the empire on the rise when Micah is writing. So <laughs> both Israel in the north and Jude in the south, they're just trying to figure out what do we do so these guys don't wipe us out. That's the big question. On top of that, there's also strife and armed conflict between the northern and southern kingdoms. You know, this nation is pretty divided morally, ethically, politically. But that's, that's nothing new. And Israel had that in spades. This is part of what happened. Israel, the northern kingdom, they didn't want to pay tribute to the Assyrians. So they connected with Damascus, that was Syria, not us Syria, but Damascus and Syria, their neighbors. And they said, hey, we're not paying tribute. But they also said to Judah, hey, we want you to join with us. Because if there's three of us, we're more powerful, we'll be able to stand up. Judah said no thanks. So Israel invaded them and Israel conquered them. They didn't conquer the city of Jerusalem, but they conquered pretty much everything else. They wanted to set up a puppet vassal king that would rule Judah for them. So it would be the trio. That didn't happen, but Judah certainly uh, was defeated. It was not a good time. These, this would be like our civil war. Brother is fighting relative you know, on one side of the line of demarcation or the other. In the northern kingdom, Israel was at the height of its power, its geography, and its wealth right before they weren't. So Israel is much bigger than Judah, and they're wealthy, and the streets in Samaria and in Israel, they're flowing with wealth right before they cease to exist as a nation. But listen to this. You know, sometimes there's a lot of money in, the, in circulation, isn't there? And, and I'm all for capitalism and free markets and all that stuff, but you can certainly cross lines ethically and morally where instead of the tide rising, raising all boats, where it's just the oppression of some for my benefit. I'm, I'm being enriched because I'm taking advantage 
of others. And that's what was going on in Israel in their day. In Micah 2, this is sort of a mild description of what was going on. Those in power, those with wealth, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. This was a big deal for the Jews. You remember the land you were on was from your forebears. That was a big thing to be on your land as a Jewish family under God's blessing in the land of promise. Well, the land was being effectively stolen away from people who didn't have the money to fend off those more powerful. Listen to the description of this in Micah 3. God says to the wealthy against the poor, you tear the skin off my people. You know, if you hunt or if you butcher an animal, you skin it so you can consume it. You tear the skin off my people. You tear the flesh from their bones. You chop them up like meat in a pot. That's graphic, isn't it? You chop them up. You're consuming my other people. My people, my children, the group I'm in covenant with, you're treating them like a piece of meat to be consumed. That's Judah, or excuse me, that's Israel in the north. In both kingdoms, there was gross idolatry, the worship of foreign gods. A foreign altar was also introduced under Ahaz at God's temple in Jerusalem. The prophets who should have been leading the nation toward God were in fact leading them away from the Lord. The politicians, Micah 3 verses 5 and 11 say, they prophesied for bribes. This would be like the political world we're in today. If you've got enough money, you can buy almost anyone and anything off. Same thing was going on there. In the southern kingdom, Judah made an alliance with Assyria. And they did it, they weren't trusting in Yahweh. God said, trust me, I'll take care of you. And they thought, well, Egypt's kind of revolting. Assyria, it's kind of shaky ground for them. So we won't pay tribute now. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did I say this? They made a tribute. They made a covenant. Assyria, you take care of us. Then they broke the covenant because Israel was, or excuse me, Egypt was revolting. Well, when they did that, the Assyrians came in and besides Jerusalem, they overran every walled city in Judah. And this is something you not only see in the biblical record, archaeologically, the king's records, the annals of the kings in Assyria, they record this exact invasion. And in fact, the king says, I shut the king of Judah up like a bird in a cage. You could read this today online. You can see images of it. And it's that story, if you remember, under Hezekiah, when God sent an angel and a plague and wiped out the Assyrian army at the gates of Jerusalem. It's the only reason Jerusalem wasn't overrun like the rest of the nation. Because of the gross failure of both nations, God spoke through Micah of the judgment he was sending. And Micah's filled with judgment. Like like much of the prophet, the prophetic writing is. It's about what God is warning his people about because of their covenant faithlessness. So Israel is overrun by the Assyrians in 722. This is during Micah's time. Assyria overruns Israel, and Israel ceases to exist as a nation and a kingdom. In fact, they're never restored. The northern kingdoms as a kingdom are never restored. A hundred years later, Judah would go into Babylonian captivity Micah 4.10 said, Zion would be plowed like a field. Jerusalem would be a heap of ruins. That's out of Micah 3, verse 12. Now, are you encouraged? <laughs> it's a depressing picture, but that's actually the reason that I, that I paint it or that we spend time here. 
This was a, uh, a very difficult time for anybody to be alive in Judah or in Israel. They were dire, dire times, challenging times. And in spite of that, and in spite of, frankly, the short-term judgment that God promised would come on them, national restoration and blessing are prophesied in Micah. In fact, Micah 4, 1 through 8 is like Isaiah. The time would come when you'd beat your swords into pruning hooks and your plowshares into something. Sorry, I'm forgetting the imagery there. But it promises that future restoration and blessing in the midst of this turmoil. In the midst of external threat and internal faithlessness, God spoke of the blessing in the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. That's what I want to get across. All the negative that was going on, all the desert kind of lifestyle that was going on, that's when God promised Jesus that he would come to Bethlehem as that ruler from eternity past. It was in that setting, a setting much like our own. Not only was the promise made in unsettling, challenging times, but the fulfillment was as well. Now that shifts into the New Testament and particularly in Matthew's gospel. But you know, when Jesus was born, it wasn't Assyria, but it was Rome that was occupying the kingdom of Judah or Israel at the time. So they're not only paying tribute, they're occupied by a foreign army. Can you imagine if the streets of Topeka were policed by Russian soldiers? That's what it would be like. So they're not free. They're under Roman rule. And not only are they under Roman rule and paying tribute, but they do have a king. They have a king under Rome. But he's not Jewish. He's an Edomite. And that's murderous King Herod. The Jews never accepted Herod as king because Herod wasn't a Jew. They're the Jewish nation. They want a Jewish king. Rome put in Herod. And of course, it was King Herod that tried to murder Jesus shortly after his birth. You remember the wise men come. They say, hey, we want to come worship your new king. Where is he? They consult. And what do they reference? Micah 5 verse 2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's why Herod uh, kills, slays the young boys in Bethlehem. Not only was there this challenge of occupation when Jesus was born, but if you read, and, and by the way, some of the histories you can read that really, to me, enlighten the ancient world, uh, Edersheim has Old Testament and New Testament histories, which are great. They're fun reading, they're good reading, and it gives you a sense of what that looked like. F.F. Bruce's New Testament history along the same line. You get a sense for what the culture and the time looked like. It's helpful when you read the text. This is what was going on. Inside Israel, there's internal strife also. You've got the Pharisees and the Sadducee parties that oppose each other theologically and otherwise. You've got the Herodians who want to become more like the Greeks and the Romans versus the Zealots that want to murder the Romans and kick them out. You've got different rabbinic schools competing for supremacy, not only on who can divorce and how and when, but on other things as well. They're all seeking the national limelight. God's promise of a Savior and the arrival of that Savior in Bethlehem occurred in uncertain, hazardous, challenging times, and none of those circumstances had any effect on God giving the promise or fulfilling the promise in Jesus' birth. So what was going on in the day didn't keep the promises of God from being given. They didn't keep the promises of God from being fulfilled. And it's worth noting, too, however bad we have ever thought we've had it, we haven't had it very bad. 
if you live in the United States, we haven't had it very bad compared to other times and other places today. But also, friends, the worst time the world's ever seen has not occurred yet. It's, it, it's going to occur before Jesus' second coming, but it hasn't occurred yet. And in the worst, worst nightmare imaginable, Jesus will still come back because he said he would. The promise of God will be fulfilled and Jesus will come back at his appearing and the second coming. The kinds of condition in Israel and Judah then, to some degree, are with us today. The challenges around us make not the smallest dent in God giving promises or fulfilling them. So pause, and I hope you have a study sheet. If you, and if you don't, just think about this for a second. What's going on in my life that looks like a desert place? What in my life is a challenge that I don't know how to overcome? What's going on that's confusion or chaos I don't know what to do with? What are those elements in my life today that might resemble, in some fashion, the challenges of Micah's day? What uncertainties, challenges, disruptions are going on in life for those around us now? And by the way, you know, um, there are people in our, in our church who are f- deciding whether or not they have a career uh, going forward because of vaccine mandates. Legally, those things are pretty much all on hold now around the country, but businesses and the military are still pursuing the mandates that have already been set in motion. So there are people in Lion and Lamb trying to figure out if they have a career that they've been in for some time, if they'll be able to, to continue with that. There are people trying to figure out how they'll make a living in the future. That's going on today. That's the challenge, some of the challenges that we face today. Whatever God causes or allows, we can trust that God who makes deserts bloom, who brings order out of chaos, who promises himself in every moment, will ultimately bring about his goodwill into our challenging situations. So what's my challenge? Or what's the challenge for somebody I know and love, care about, and pray for? What's the challenge look like? And then here's the second question. What does Scripture say to that? What promises of God can I attach to the challenge I have currently in my life? Now, if I, if I can identify my challenge, the chaos, the, the, the desert place that I'm facing today, if I can do that, but I don't know what God says to that, you know what I could do? I could read my Bible. You guys are so sharp. But you are a little slow this morning. I could read my Bible. And you know what? If I don't know where to go, I could use a concordance. I could go online to Blue Letter Bible and I could look up a phrase or a theme or a word and I could see what God says about that. I could see, God, what do you say to my life, to my challenge now? What promises have you given that I can latch on to? Guys, there's at least two. The first is John 3.16. And and I would press this on anyone apart from anything else. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you don't know you're saved, Jesus makes it simple. Believe in me. Trust me. I'll save you forever. Believe on the Lord Jesus. God gave us his son so that all who believe, anyone who would believe, would have everlasting life. That's one. And the other is Romans 8, 28. If you don't know anything else and you're a Christian, God has promised that anything and everything that you experience in life, any experience you're in or you've had or you will have, no matter how chaotic, how challenging, how trying, that he is somehow taking that challenge and he is using it to turn you more fully into the image of his son, Jesus, which is his great work in us and in the world today. 
So he's not making us all of us rich or good looking. <clears throat> I didn't look at anyone particular when I said that. There's all kinds of things we might want that God may not be giving us. But I know this. I know that whatever God has caused or allowed to come into my life, He is using to make me more like Christ. I know that. So that, those two places are a good place to start about what my, the challenges I've got in life and what going forward looks like. I can start there. And I can also look up in Scripture to see what God says about other things more specific. Lord, what should I know? What lens from your word do you want me to see my current challenges through? What promise do you want me to pray back? Because I'm ultimately I'm hanging on God and his word and the fulfillment of his word in Christ. That's my hope. It's not on my circumstances. It's not what's going on around me. And it's not my ability to pull anything off. Just like it wasn't Micah's, it wasn't Isaiah's. So that's the first point. The second point is related to Bethlehem. We're Christians 2,000 years after the Incarnation. Bethlehem's a big deal to us. Bethlehem was not a big deal then. Bethlehem was, was a point on the map to be forgotten. Bethlehem wasn't big enough to be mentioned when people were listing off the notable towns in Israel. That's what the text says. But also, Micah 5.1 and 5.2, there's a division in there. Micah 5.1 is about uh, Israel's going to be invaded, so Israel, muster your troops. Gather your men of war together to oppose the invader. But guess what? When you get to Bethlehem, how many troops can you muster? Not many. It's too small. There's not enough people. There's not enough able-bodied men. Bethlehem's best, if you will, day was in its past. You remember Bethlehem was the place where the story of Ruth occurred. Bethlehem was the place, and the Jews knew this, where David was born, but that was a long time ago. Now, I don't say this to insult anyone in Kansas, but to me, Bethlehem would be a little bit like Abilene, Kansas. So Abilene, Kansas was the place that Ike came from. General and president, that's its claim to fame. What's, what's Abilene's claim to fame today? Uh, it's a chocolate factory. Right off the top. <laughs> you see, it's like, do we go to Abilene for strength or economic profit or any of those other things? I don't. Maybe you do. But that would sort of be the thing. Bethlehem's heyday, if you could even say that, because it's a small little burg. It was, Ruth was there, yep. And David came from there, yep. But David lived in Jerusalem. So it was not a big place and it had no particular significance. Now, sometimes size does matter. You know, Jesus says, man, if you're going out to war, make sure... I got how many troops? They have how many troops? I'm building a tower. I got to figure up the math. Can I do this? Can I not do that? That's one thing. But when God's in a thing, he doesn't look at our resources sort of as his means of accomplishing his purposes because he brings his resources with him. So size in many of the things related to God, size doesn't matter. The, the Jewish half of the kingdom went into captivity about 600 B.C., and you remember the 70 years you're going to suffer, but then I'm going to let you go back. So about 539, when the Medo-Persians defeat the Babylonians, the Jews return to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem's been plowed like a field. It's a wreck. The temple was absolutely destroyed. They would have come back to heaps of stone, mounds. There was nothing there. The Babylonians wanted to make a point when they destroyed Jerusalem. They had. So when those returning Jews, the first thing they start to build is the temple. 
because we're all about meeting with God in the land of promise. So they lay the foundation of the second temple. And when they lay it, there's a celebration. And at the celebration, some people are happy and glad. Life's good. The foundation's laid. And other people, they're sad. Why is that? Because some of those that came back, they'd seen Solomon's temple. They'd seen the glory and the might and the wealth and the stature. And they see this foundation for the second temple. And you know what? They know something. This ain't going to be Solomon's temple. And we're, we're not feeling the love. But God says this through another minor prophet, Zechariah. Zechariah 4.10. Who has despised the day of small things? Who's despised? They're looking at the temple like it's a little insignificant thing. And God claims the temple. He says, that's my house. That's my temple. And he says that these guys, they've, they've laid the foundation and they're going to raise the capstone and they're going to yell grace, grace, God's grace at work to build this new second temple that won't have the glory, the external glory of Solomon's temple, but it would have the internal glory of God's presence. It was God's presence that made the temple worth knowing, worth being at. It wasn't the external structure, it was God's presence. And that applies to Bethlehem as well. Like the size of the second temple, the significance of the small town of Bethlehem couldn't be measured by size or population, but by the significance of the one who would be born there. That was the deal. Bethlehem is significant because of who came from there. Uh, Phillips Brooks, short story about a little song. Phillips Brooks was a very well-known preacher, pastor, Presbyterian in the 1800s in Pennsylvania. And like many Americans and Europeans in his day, he visited the Holy Land in 1865. And while there, he had a memorable stop where he was over the hill of Bethlehem and he was looking down on the city of Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem. And that was memorable to him. And three years later in 1868, he was thinking about that scene. And so he quickly wrote down a little song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And he went to his organist, the guy that would, the worship leader, he went to his organist and said, I wrote this Christmas carol and I want you to have music for it this Sunday, no pressure. <laughs> and this, this is what the organist wrote. Mr. Brooks came to me on Friday and said, Redner, have you ground out the music yet to O Little Town of Bethlehem? I replied, no, but that he should have it by Sunday. On the Saturday night previous, my brain was all confused about the tune. I thought more about my Sunday school lesson than I did about the music. But I was roused from sleep late in the night, hearing an angel strain whispering in my ear, and seizing a piece of music paper, I jotted down the treble of the tune as we now have it. And on Sunday morning, before going to church, I filled in the harmony. Neither Mr. Brooks nor I ever thought the carol or the music to it would live beyond that Christmas of 1868. He, he finished it before service that morning. It's like you're eating your Wheaties and you're finishing the song. The song, the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, a little song about a little place, quickly written, quickly set to music for a single Christmas setting, has lived for 150 years, reminding anyone who hears it that when God promised His Messiah, the Savior of the world, he would show up on the scene in the tiny hamlet of Bethlehem, a place of a nothing place, a spot on the map, a place on the road. Micah's message was that God will send a future ruler to Israel and the great ruler will come. 
from the little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is two words in Hebrew. Beth or bet is house and lehem or lehem is bread. It's the house of bread is the place Jesus would come from. Micah says, or God says through Micah that the little shepherding town that produced Israel's greatest past king, King David, would produce its greatest shepherd king of all, the Lord Jesus, David's descendant and greater son. So little Bethlehem, the house of bread, becomes the birthplace for Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus calls himself the bread of life in John 6. Bethlehem, the small shepherding hamlet, which, by the way, that area produced the lambs that were used for slaughter at the temple. Bethlehem was the place where the lambs and the sheep were raised for slaughter at the temple in Jerusalem. The small shepherding hamlet will produce the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who gives eternal life and cares for our souls. Jesus called himself that in John 10. And of course, you know, if you read Matthew 2 and Luke 2, the Lord Jesus was born in the little town mentioned by Micah, a place of no significance. God spoke through Micah in challenging times of a little place where his means of redemption would appear in flesh. I want to close by spending just a little bit of thought on applications. Uh, why do God's promises for Messiah come in challenging times and little places, insignificant places? Why do the fulfillments of God's promises regarding Jesus' incarnation come during messy times to small settings? Why does God do that? You know, the Jews, and they had, they had every reason to expect this, when they were looking for Messiah, they're looking for the conquering king who's going to throw the Romans out. They're looking for him because God told them that's the kind of king you're going to get. They just didn't know that Messiah would come first as the suffering servant to put away sin. But Jesus will return as the conquering king, make no mistake. He will return in that venue. He hasn't yet. God does it this way, I think, because Jesus isn't defined by place or time. He's greater than both. And that would be the point, by the way. If you read the New Testament epistle of 2 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly makes this point, that God uses weak people, foolish people. God uses things that aren't to shame those things that are. God uses the poor to shame the, the wealthy. God uses the foolish to shame the wise or the intelligent. God does things in such a way that you know that's God and God's power. That's not us. That's not something that a mere mortal pulled off. Jesus doesn't need optimal settings to show up. He shows up in challenging times to bring order, life, and peace, and He's still doing that today. He doesn't need large, impressive settings to elevate Himself to His proper place. His presence in and of itself transforms hamlets to citadels homes to mansions, and his church, just like this one, to his dwelling place. This season, we don't need to fret the confusion and challenges around us. And I hope we don't. I hope we don't. Christians of all people, we have reason to have peace in stormy conditions. We have reason to have hope in dry desert places because of who we know, because of God's promises, and because of Christ. We don't need to regret that we're not people of greater stature living in a place of greater renown. God's promises regarding Messiah in the past incarnation and in the future second coming and kingdom were given in small places and challenging times so we know the fulfillment of God's promises are sure based on the power of God and the person of Jesus Christ. 
God's word is certain because it depends on God, his word, and the power of Jesus Christ. The promises of God and the person of Christ are all we need. Now, I would just say again, have we trusted Christ? At the end of the day, it's all that matters. It's all that matters. Have we trusted Christ? Have we taken God at his word that Jesus will save us and save us forever? When others lament, we can rejoice in the incarnation, sins atoned for, the promise of Jesus' return, and we can share the hope we have based on the word of God and Jesus' incarnation, the parts of God's word that have already been literally fulfilled. We can share those hopes with those around us who don't have that hope yet. They don't know. Guys, you know what? This is a great time to be a Christian. Did you know that? You know, in the darker it gets, it's a great time to be a Christian. The more confusing it gets, we have certainty. We have God's word. We have the promise of his word. We have the person of Christ. The Holy Spirit's been given. You know what I'm saying? We should not hang our heads. We should not be despondent or despairing. We should say it's a great day to be a Christian, no matter how bad, how confusing, how challenging the times are, because we know who we belong to. We know where we're going. So we want to make sure when we communicate to others that we do so out of the promises of God's word and in light of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We have hope like others in the world don't. And that's a hope that does not, it cannot disappoint. So I hope that's the venue we're living out of, just as Micah and Isaiah did. Well, with that, if you would, would you guys rise? I want to close by reading a well-known Christmas passage out of Luke 2, verses 4 through 7. Let's read that together. Stretch, yawn, whatever you need. Get ready to sing and worship in song. And read with me, please. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn.